We'll continue in Psalm 51 this morning. We'll start in verse 5. If you want to go ahead and turn your scripture that direction. Lord, it's, it's been my prayer all week, Lord, not that, um, that you wouldn't need an invitation in this house. Lord, that sometimes we say, God, we give you permission. Lord, you don't need permission. You don't need an invitation. This is your house. This is your time, Holy Spirit. You move anybody out of the way that's attempting to steal your glory. You be Lord. Holy Spirit, I have nothing to bring this morning out of my own personality or intellect. If there's any fruit that comes out of this time, it'll be from your, your spirit, your power, and your presence. So you alone be exalted. Lord, we love your word. It's holy to us. It's holy to our families. It's in your wonderful name, Jesus, that we pray. Everybody say amen. Well, John Calvin wrote um, what's called the Institutes of Christian Religion at the age of 26. Um, and that book was went wild across Europe. I have a friend who always says to me, Caleb, the majority of people who do anything great in their life, they always do it before the age 30. And so if you don't do anything before the age 30, you're not going to do anything. Um, and so you guys know I passed 30 last month, and so that pressure's gone. So I ain't going to do anything. 26, he wrote the Institutes of Christian Religion, and uh, it really shook, really, really shook Europe up. In, in Book 2, Chapter 1 of Calvin's Institutes, he discussed that the chapter is about um, original sin. And now Calvin drew his ideas from original sin, um, or at least a lot of his thought, from St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine uh, had a lot to say about the, the concepts of original sin. Calvin builds further off of it, uh, really believing that Genesis is a historical account, Genesis chapter 3, and that Adam was a historical figure, and then when Adam fell... Um, all of humanity fell with him. And so sometimes theologians will use the term federal headship to define Adam's role as the, the first man, the head of humanity. And when Adam fell, we fell with him. And although in Genesis 1 we were created in the image of God, and we talk about that a lot because we want to instill within our body and within our culture the idea that all life is immensely valuable. So although we are all created in the image of God, we are also all marred in the fall of Adam, or the, the image of God has been marred in us, and, and where we once reflected God perfectly, now in Calvin's words, we, we are totally depraved. We, we carry within us wickedness. Now, total depravity is the T to the TULIP acronym that describes or defines five-point Calvinism, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, those points are highly debated, and I wouldn't call myself a Calvinist or a five-point Calvinist. Many would say that John Calvin wasn't a five-point Calvinist. That's a conversation for another day. Um, but total depravity, although there is some discussion about what's mean by total depravity, the idea of original sin and total depravity is consistent across not only Christian thought, but Jewish thought. Total depravity meaning that we, from our innermost being, we've there, there's a fountain of wickedness from within me, from the moment of conception, I am wicked. 
Calvin defines original sin this way. Original sin may, de- may be defined as a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature extending to all parts of the soul which first makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God and then produces in us works which in Scripture are termed works of the flesh. And so total depravity in Calvin's definition, it's something hereditary, something we received. It spreads to all parts of our soul. It makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God and it produces in us what Paul calls in Romans, uh, Galatians, the works of the flesh. And Calvin goes on to write, again, in the Institutes of Christian Religion. He, I say he wrote it at 26, and he did, but he, re- he revised it quite a few times. And so, whatever, you need to know that. He wasn't quite as brilliant at 26. He still learned some things. Um, but he wrote in that chapter that it was necessary that you really know what's, what's in yourself, what man knows what's in himself. He wrote, and imagine this, John Calvin writing this, that the philosophers of the world want you to know your potential. But the scriptures want you to know your brokenness and your depravity. And I think that's so fascinating to imagine Calvin saying this in the height of the Reformation. Because that's really where we are today. The pulpits of our nation want you to know your potential, your purpose. But the scriptures want you to know your brokenness, your depravity, your need. He writes, Calvin goes on to say, When viewing our miserable condition since Adam's fall, all confidence... All boasting are overthrown, and we blush for shame, and we feel truly humble. We blush for shame at the concept of our own wickedness. And Calvin thought it was basic to an understanding of the gospel to be displeased with yourself, to recognize that you have nothing to offer God, that God is wonderfully holy, totally perfect and righteous. We sing this morning of his majestic nature, and you you need to allow that to not just be a concept, but to sink into your heart. No, God is really holy, awfully holy, and we are obnoxious to him, wicked. Now, as we step into Psalm 51, we'll find David's words this morning as we open in verse 5. And David's words, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Now remember, Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. And so this is after his sin with Bathsheba. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's had her husband murdered a man who served in his own military. He's lied before all the people about what's happened. He's been rebuked by the prophet Nathan. And now he comes to this place of broken. And so as we step into verse 5, he begins to look deeper in the mirror. And in a sense, this psalm is about his sin with Bathsheba. But in another sense, he's going to begin to explore the fact that it's not only this that he's done, but from his conception, from his mother's womb, from his childhood and his youth, his life has been filled with a river of evil. And so his repentance doesn't just stop with Bathsheba. It's much deeper. His problem is much more foundational to who he is. Now, you should say amen to that, but I know you're afraid to. Okay, so let's read. This morning, we'll just read verses 5 through 13 of Psalm 51. And and again, I keep going back to Charles Spurgeon's words that no man can really comment on this psalm in a way that's helpful, or at least helpful enough, but um, that what's happening here is deeper than words. And so I want to ask you just to listen, read intentionally, ask the Holy Spirit to impress the truths 
of this psalm on your heart. Remember again that this psalm is not just David's words of repentance, but it's spirit-inspired words of repentance. And in that sense, it's a model for us of what it means to really turn. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. First, David points to this concept of original sin. Some throughout history have concluded that the the words, um, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some will say that, that Jesse, David's father, had an adulterous affair and that David was the illegitimate son. And so when David says, in sin did my mother conceive me, he's speaking of an affair that happened with Jesse and his mother. And then they'll say that the reason why David wasn't brought before Samuel, do you remember when Samuel was coming to anoint one of Jesse's sons? The reason he wasn't brought is because he was an illegitimate son born out of sin. Um, there's, there's some Jewish thought that goes that direction. But, but all agree that that's, that's not what the language here implies. That's not the thought that David's pursuing. That's not the direction he intends for your mind to go. What he's implying is that from his conception, from his youth, forgive me, I'm still going through puberty. There's a little thing going on here. I don't know if you know that, but still plaguing me. That you, you laugh, but my voice cracked until I was like 23. It really was bad. Um, when he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, he's pointing to um, thought, both in Jewish literature and teaching and in Christian literature and teaching. And he's really pulling back on lines from uh, even as early as Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Remember, this is. Before, um, before Noah's account with the flood. The Lord, this is Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then this thought just keeps rolling through Scripture, so I just pulled a few cases to show it to you. Psalm 53, just two psalms later, the Scripture says in verse 2 through 3, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together, collectively, together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And Paul labors to communicate this idea from a theological perspective in Romans chapter 3. All of Romans 3 is a discussion of original sin or the depravity of man. So for instance, Romans chapter 3 verse 13 through 18 says, Their throat is an open grave. Here Paul is just quoting a line of scriptures. He says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet 
are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The there and they, and those pronouns refer to humanity, and so you exist within that. And experience teaches us this as a verifiable truth. I was in a conversation with a a gentleman once about the gospel, and you know you're trying to share your faith, and so I try to steer towards the Romans road, you know. Um, and so, I, at some point in conversation, I quoted Romans Romans three twenty three. Um, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he says to me, "Oh, you don't really believe that, do you? You're one of those old time preachers that all have sinned. We're all sinners." And I said, "Oh, I do believe it. Do you know anyone who's not a sinner? Your mom, does she sin?" Your father, did he sin? Do you have any siblings that were sinless? No, no, the fact that humanity is sinful is verifiable. If there's any verifiable truth in the gospel, it's this. Humanity is broken. And you can pretend like you're not. Oh, but God, we're all rolling our eyes. And so David begins to pull on this concept. From conception, God, I've been evil and wicked. Yes, Bathsheba was the fruit of something much deeper in me. Um, the, the murder of Uriah the Hittite, it was the fruit of something much deeper in me. There's a fountain of evil that I carry within my ribcage. I am corrupt, God, David says. I am corrupt. And the next line breaks me. It, bothered me all week so he says behold that that you know that means look i was conceived in iniquity and then the next line says behold or look you delight in truth in the inward being so first i from conception have carried within me a well of sin within me in the deepest part of me i'm wicked Look, behold, what you desire is truth in the inner man. What you delight in is holiness and purity and uprightness and integrity. What you desire, God, is men and women who express righteousness. The desire of your heart, what would please you, is wisdom and purity and truth in the inner man. But I don't have that. Behold, in me is wickedness. Behold, what you desire is purity. Again, God says, be holy as I am holy. What pleases God is holiness. It's what he wants from us. Then David continues, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Meaning, all the truth that I have all the wisdom that I've carried throughout my life, it has been a, the direct ministry of your spirit. And so David's not denying that he has lived a life of wisdom. He's not denying that he has ha acted out righteousness at times. But he's saying every single word of wisdom, of truth that flowed from my lips, you taught me, Holy Spirit. All the truth that I have, all the righteousness that I've acted out, anything good that's come from my life has been from your spirit deposited in my heart in the secret place. It's only your ministry in my life that bears good fruit. 
I am evil. You desire holiness. Everything good I have, you gave me. And so follow the logic here. Behold, plagued with iniquity. Behold, you want truthfulness. And and every bit of truthfulness that I've ever had in my life was a direct gift from your presence. With these thoughts in mind, one, I am thoroughly evil. Two, you desire truth. Three, my only hope is your intervention. David now moves into prayer. Because when you understand your depravity and your wickedness and your brokenness, your only hope is prayer, is God's intervention. Neediness, friends. And so, so far in this series, we're talking about what it means to be broken. One of the key factors of brokenness is to acknowledge your own neediness. Neediness, write this in your notebook, cram it in your heart. Neediness is the foundation of prayerfulness. And self-sufficiency as the antithesis of prayerfulness. If a church is prayerless, it's because the church perceives that they can work things out from their own intellect, from their own strength. But you need to know that out of your own intellect and your own strength flows evil. Why would you think that you could live your life outside of dependence upon God's presence if you really believe the doctrines of original sin? The church is prayerless because she views herself as competent and capable. And our messages are, look how productive you could be. Look how, look, look, look how much purpose is within your bones. Here's five steps to developing your purpose. And I want to say, let's talk about five steps to developing prayerfulness in the church by God. I don't have anything to offer you. The only good that comes from my life is a direct gift of the Spirit of God in my soul that flows through me. If I'm not totally dependent upon God, I have nothing to offer you but evil. By God, why do we think we can fix everything with our programs? Where's the church on her knees in this hour? And you can't fix everything with your politics. You won't fix everything with your blogging, your resharing. We can't even fix everything by arguing and witnessing and evangelizing. If we don't have the power of the Spirit in our midst, I can't argue someone into the kingdom. I can't cause you to be born again. There's nothing in me that will awaken a dead heart to life. It's got to be the Spirit of God in our midst. And, And guys... Forgive me because I don't, I don't want to be condemning. I'm, it's not my heart to condemn. I love the church of Jesus and I love our church. But churches in our nation are not dependent upon the power of the Spirit. We're not really desperate for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's the foundation of what David's saying here. I am wicked. What you really want from me is holiness. And I have no holiness unless your power and your presence is in my midst. And then David just rattles into prayer. I, I told you before when I was younger, and when going to ministry school, and I, you know, I did some school and other schooling, but the ministry school that we went to, um, I had this idea that um, that I needed to outread everyone, 
and that I needed to outpray everyone and I needed to outfast everyone because if I outread, outprayed, and outfasted everyone, then God would use me and would use me the most. And what I really wanted to be was used of God. And so I would pray for hours. There was a season before Haley and I got married where I lived in a single wide that should have been condemned a long time ago. A long time ago. And when we, when, when we moved out, they did condemn it. Um, it was bad. I lay on the floor that, we, you know, mattresses on the ground. But if you know me, I had books lining the room. Single wide mattress on the ground, books everywhere. And then lay on that ground and fast and not eat and pray. I can remember, oh, I used to hard fast some without water. Um, and so I remember when, it, since I'm laying on the ground of that single wide trailer about four or five in the morning, I start dreaming about Gatorade, Gatorade. <laughs> I got up and went and got one because it was a new day. It was four in the morning. I made it. Um, thank you, Gatorade. God bless you. And I had to help pray. I had to pray more. I'm preaching for like, I'm, I'm preaching for a middle school youth group and I've fasted for days and prayed for hours and I stand up to teach on Hannah and Hannah's brokenness because she's barren and I'm making this big theological point that we need to be hungry and broken before God because we're barren and why aren't we praying and I'm you know me I'm talking too fast and too emotional in the middle schoolers are like somebody put that guy in the loony house um but I want you to know that God's been dealing with me this week and working on some things and but, but I want you to know that today I don't pray because I feel like I need to pray more than other people so that I'll be a better minister. I pray because I'm scared to death of living prayerless. I pray because I'm scared of a life without God's presence. The most dangerous thing in the world is a preacher who has not been on his knees. The last thing you need as a congregation is for me to lull you to sleep and for you to feel like you've done your religious duty to sit and listen to the man talk for 30 minutes and for us to meet here and never really hear from God. That's the most dangerous thing in our nation. And churches that don't know prayer. Leonard Ravenhill used to say, no man is greater than his prayer life and no church is greater than her prayer life. And so I, I pray today because I'm scared to death of a life without God's presence actively moving in my midst. I'm scared to death of what my ministry would look like if God's spirit doesn't rest upon me. So Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, we just came out of a series on Galatians that I was thinking about this text. He says, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed into you. That's the... King James uses that word travail. I'm trying to see what the ESV uses. Anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The idea of travailing in prayer, you know this. It, it, it largely um, points to this moment where Elijah puts his knees between his legs and he's praying for God to send rain. Um, and it's, and, and what, what we've thought throughout history is that Elijah's in the posture of childbirth with his head between his knees. And so travailing is, is a term that you use for a woman in labor who's, who's pushing and groaning and, and giving everything she has to make this thing happen. So Paul says to the church at Galatia who's falling into sin, I travail over you until Christ is formed. Paul is a man of great intellect. Paul knows all the strategies. He's smarter than all of us put together in the room. You put all of our brains into a pile and Paul's still smarter than us. 
Why is Paul crying in prayer? Because all of his intellect and all of his gift and all of his great preaching and writing and everything he can do in and of himself, he cannot form Christ in this church. If Paul needed to cry in prayer, God, we need to cry in prayer. And, and the idea of travailing, again, not to be graphic, um, is, is that you picture a woman in labor. You, you push until the thing is birthed. A woman in labor doesn't stop halfway. And so Paul says, I've prayed and I've cried, and not just this shallow, oh God, help, but I've laid on the ground and groaned in prayer, and I cry, and I groan, and I pray, and I cry, and I groan, and I pray, until the thing's finished. Paul has no ability to form Christ in the Galatian church. So he prays, desperately prays. And we have no wisdom unless God speaks to our inner man. We have no power unless the Spirit of God is active in our midst. We have no vision unless God opens our eyes. David naturally begins to pray because David understands what it means to be needy. Get needy, church. Men in the room, fathers in the room. Your greatest fear should be fathering your kids prayerless. Women in the room. When's the last time your knees have really known the carpet? And so he moves into petition. And here's his petition. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Purge me with hyssop. Notice every, every line is a request for God to act. Okay? And I, I don't need to line by line all of this. Every line. Pur- you purge me with hyssop. Create in me a clean heart. He does not say, I will create in me a clean heart. I will go to a seminar and I will take notes. And I will listen to a man on the internet tell me how I can have a... No, he says, God, you create in me a clean heart. You do it, God. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. We know nothing of being broken by God and for God. Create in me a clean heart. You renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now you could say, oh Caleb, we're post the cross of Christ and we have the Holy Spirit um, at salvation, and that's totally true. But I just, I just give me five minutes to again remind you that the Holy Spirit is not an it that you get. He's not a badge. It's not, I've come to Jesus, and I've been born again, and I've done it. It's over, and now I can go about my life, and I've got... No, the Holy Spirit's not an it. He's a he. And so, yes, the moment you give your life to Jesus, the very moment the Holy Spirit breathes on you and you are indwelt with God and He he will never leave you or forsake you, but you can't ignore Him. 
and you can resist him. And you can live your life with him always on the back burner. And so on one hand, yes, we have the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. But the scripture never has in mind, it never has in mind that you come to the altar one time and walk away and live your life like nothing ever happened. The scripture always has in mind that you come to the altar one day and then the next week you come to the altar and then the next week you come to the altar and you live totally abandoned and in love with the person of the Holy Spirit. You follow his leading. Keep in step with the Spirit. Those who keep in step with the Spirit will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul says. Are you really keeping in step with the Spirit? Or have you? is he a box that you've checked? And yes, I agree with you that God does not abandon you. And and I think that the moment you give your life to Jesus, your salvation is secure. You should, should still be scared to death of living a life not leaning on Him. And if you haven't figured out by now that you can pray a prayer, get saved, and then live a stale, cold life, Scriptures never have in mind a one-time encounter with Jesus that stops there. It has in mind a one-time encounter with Jesus that opens up the door to a life of intimacy with the person of the Holy Spirit. It does not have in mind that you come to the altar and then ignore Him for the rest of your life and go about your own business and preach from your intellect and teach from your intellect because you're just that incredible. The Scriptures never have that in mind. It was always, you, you come to the cross, meet Him, and walk with Him know him and celebrate him honor him do we really honor the person of the holy spirit somebody from the worship team if you'll go ahead and come We said last week that because we've made pleasure an idol in the church, we've done everything we can to avoid the biblical concept of brokenness. And that as we study Psalm 51, it's our hope that we'll rediscover what it means to be broken before God. Today, all I wanted you to see is that self-sufficiency robs you of dependence, of neediness, and what it means to really Lean not on your own strength. Why would we live proud and self-sufficient when the scriptures teach that outside of God, we have nothing good to offer? Everything good that flows from us, it's it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Do you know what that means? It's the fruit that we bear from the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. It's not called the, the fruit of great... 21st century Americans. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life. David says, my only hope is that you teach my heart wisdom, that you cleanse me, that you take not your spirit from me. And if we're really aware of our own brokenness and what the Bible teaches about us, and that's what Calvin was saying, you really need to know what the Bible teaches about us. Why would we ever get off of our knees?
our greatest fear should be prayerlessness. Our greatest fear should be arrogance and self-sufficiency and fixing all of our problems with our programs and running ahead, arguing our way through our life's issues. stand to your feet this morning I want to just for those of you I know we have guests so forgive me because I'm I don't probably feel dramatic forgive me if you're a guest but for those of us who this is your church I just want to say I want to give you permission to be needy men in the room it's a it's a biblical concept to be needy it is biblical to be needy men in the room if your pride keeps you away from the altar that's an issue so this morning We're just going to allow God's presence to move for a moment. But I want to say, altar ministry, will you guys get in place? I want to say, if you're sick and you have a need, man, we don't have anything to offer you. But the altar is open. Come cry out to God. I feel in my heart this morning that there's some here struggling with depression. And everything in the world says get counseling. I'm not against counseling. You should get counseling. But by God, let's start with prayer. There's no comfort like the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to invite you this morning to come to the altar if you're wrestling with depression. If you've never given your life to Jesus, listen to me. Today is the day. His blood will wash you from the entirety of your sin. All of your guilt will be eradicated before God. You can have right relationship with God, not because of the way that you live, but because of the way Jesus has lived. And so for a moment, the altars are going to be open. I want to invite you to come if that's you. So Seth, go ahead and lead us in worship for a minute. I'm going to pray. Lord, teach us what it means to be needy again. Church, don't hold back this morning. Lord, teach us what it means to be needy again. Don't let your pride stop you from pressing in this morning. You're our only hope. You're our greatest joy. You're our greatest joy, Holy Spirit. Forgive us for rushing ahead. presence in our midst. Oh God, raise up men and women who know what it means to travail in prayer. Raise up men and women who know the cross of Christ, who've really been moved by the blood of Jesus. We need you, God. We need you, God. We need you, God. of our arrogance, God.
So, Lord, this morning, as a family, we just declared that we really need your presence, Lord. We need you. And, Father, we're a church that believes in the gifts of the Spirit. We're a church that believes in the power of the Spirit. Lord, make us a church that's dependent upon the person of the Spirit. receive glory in this house. You alone receive adoration. That God be true and every man a liar. We trust you. We love you. It's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Well, the altars are going to stay open. If you want to stay in the altars, you're more than welcome to. Just want to mention to you that we have um, next steps that starts at 1030 if you're new and want to learn more about the church, but if not, you're welcome to just hang out and enjoy God's presence. If you're sick, we'd love to pray for you. I believe God can heal you today. We love you. We pray you have a blessed week.
Jesus, it's me.